bringing us here together. We thank you for our church family. Um, we thank you for our community, Lord. And uh, we thank you for a time that we can gather together and worship you, learn more about you, and, and, and celebrate uh, you and what you've done for us. Um, Lord, we pray that as we, as we go through this week, we can be lights for you. Um, that we know that uh, you have a plan for us. And um, Lord, we ask that you just, you just watch over us and be with us and help us too. Uh, to fulfill that and uh, to show others your love. We thank you for Ben, and we pray that you uh, be with us as we as we hear his message this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tanner. First Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in verse uh, 18 is where we will be this morning. Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has written this letter, 1 Peter, to these elect exiles in the dispersion that have been dispersed across uh, what is modern-day Asia, uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, at the time it's written, they're under Roman rule. And so you have these, these Christians, these young churches that, that Peter's writing to. He's telling them this suffering, this sacrifice, like these, this, this hardship is going to come. They're already facing a little bit of persecution, kind of from a, a social aspect, but, but a much more intense persecution is going to come. Uh, and then so far in the letter, uh, Peter has talked about you know, that suffering that's coming, you kind of being prepared, but he's also talked about this glorious salvation, this God the Father planned, this God the Son accomplished, and this God the Spirit applied salvation, this gospel, this good news that sustains us as believers, even when we're walking through the worst of what life looks like. And so now in the second half of, of 1 Peter, He's been walking us practically through what this looks like just in normal, everyday life. This is important. It's great for us to sit in pews and to hear these words. What's wrong is so often we will leave the doors, and as soon as we walk out the door, there's just something about that pagan, dusty air outside that causes these words in our head to just flow right out of our ears, and we continue living life like we had been. Or maybe it lasts longer, but as soon as the alarm rings tomorrow, this gospel just kind of flutters away. What Peter's showing us is this is so much more than just a Sunday morning thing. It's not saying we abandon Sunday morning. It's saying it's more than just simply us gathering together, patting ourselves on the back, and then going about business as usual. No, no. The gospel makes us weird. It's more than a theology, and it's more than a doctrine that we're supposed to store up in our head. It's something that is meant to be knowledge that seeps into our heart. And when it seeps into our heart, it changes the way we act in the world. It changes our behaviors, our desires, the things that we want in life. It changes our hearts, our souls. There's nothing normal about us if we're Christians. So Peter's showing us what it looks like, and so far what this gospel looks like in our life that Peter's telling us is it looks like suffering. What a great message, right? Repent, turn to Jesus, suffer. And the reason it's this way is because the world just does not get Jesus. And if the world does not get Jesus, then the world will not get Jesus' followers either. So what do we do? We share the gospel. 
hoping that those people who persecute, who cause us to suffer, who are mean or, or do whatever, those people who do not understand us, do not understand Jesus, that God might grip their heart, might grip their soul, and that God might save them. And so we proclaim this gospel with our words. We share the good news of Jesus Christ with our mouth, right? You can't hear the gospel if nobody says the gospel, but that doesn't mean we live lives that look like the world. No, no, no. We live lives that also exemplify what the gospel does. A lot of times we'll say, I just want to live my life in a way that's going to share the gospel with other people. But let's just be honest. That's not how it works. Nobody is going to repent and turn to Jesus because you're not outside in the parking lot doing drugs right now. You shouldn't be. But there is a gospel proclamation that must come with that. And so last week with low energy, less than stellar delivery, and a disease I caught from a cow... I preached about how we are called to submit to our governing authorities. In a nutshell, we belong to the kingdom of God if we're, if, if we're Christians. That is where our government, like that's our, our ruling entity, the kingdom of God with King Jesus ruling supreme. So our rights as citizens, our rights as American citizens, God calls us multiple places in the Bible to use those rights for the glory of God. So this freedom that we have is a gospel freedom to be the best citizens that we could possibly be. So we submit to those who are in ruling positions over us, whether that's our local governors, our state governors, or our our national entities, our senators, our congressmen, our president, any of those things we are called to willingly, joyfully submit to. Because when we do that, ultimately what we're doing is we're not trusting in our government. We're trusting that those who are ruling, those who have those authorities, are placed there by God for a purpose and for a reason. And sometimes they're placed in those positions for a purpose and for a reason so that Christians can, so the world can see how Christians respond to policies that are antithetical to what we believe in. So we submit, as long as they don't command us to sin, right? We're going to submit to those governing authorities. Today, we're going to talk about a less controversial deal, slavery. And how this gospel submission that Peter's calling us to is understanding, right? Our, Our national rights, our citizenship rights are being used and leveraged for the gospel. And also, so are our personal rights and our personal freedoms. This leads us to understand that my rights, my feelings, or as a human being, are to be used for the glory of God to proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read all of verse 18 through 25, and then we will pray and we'll come back to the top and dive in. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For if uh, it brings favor if, because of the consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. But what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, you bring favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. And he, when he was insulted, he didn't insult in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he entrusted himself into the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed, for we were like sheep going astray. But you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage of Scripture in 1 Peter, I pray that you would open our eyes to hear you and to see you. God, as we seek to be a church that is centered on your gospel, that we seek to disciple one another, as we seek to evangelize the lost that you've placed within our spheres, I pray that you would use this moment, this time that we're hearing your word proclaimed, to open our hearts and soften us to be molded and to be shaped by you. God, I pray that your words would not just be a head knowledge that's fleeting and that flees as soon as we leave, but would be something that seeps into our heart and changes us that you would help us to understand that our rights that we claim to have as Americans, you use them for your glory how you see fit. Because where your word goes out, life starts, life is rejuvenated. Grow us in you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, we're going to start in verse 18 and work through verse 20. Household slaves, submit to your master's with all reverence, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the cruel, for it brings favor if because of consciousness of God someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. Unjustly, For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten you endure it, but when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, it brings favor with God's. Now this is uh, God. This is difficult for us because of America's history with slavery. So let's talk about it, let's get it in the open, let's figure out what's going on, because what Peter's talking about is a different thing than what you and I are used to as slavery. Remember, Peter's audience are these elect exiles that have been dispersed around Asia Minor. And so in the Roman Empire, which is the ruling authority of these people, there were lots and lots of slaves. But this was very different than American slavery. This was not people of a certain race or a certain ethnicity that were captured in their home and then brought to these places to be these servants who had no rights. Most of these people were either prisoners of war or they sold themselves into slavery to pay off debt. By the time Peter writes this, most of the slaves he's going to be addressing are really the children of those who did those things. At Roman times, slaves could buy their freedom. You didn't work for, like, you, you worked, some, some masters were better, they were not as cruel as others. You, you could earn money, and you, you did earn money as a slave. Uh, many slaves had careers, some were farmers, some were lawyers, some were doctors. And you could even become a citizen of Rome from being a slave. There's records of this. So they, they had rights, though not many, but they did earn this income. And so what happened is as the gospel spreads, right, Jesus dies on the cross. We see in the early church there's those 3,000 people that Peter preaches to at at Pentecost. There's this mass conversion, and then all of those people get sent home. And so as they scatter and they go about home, the gospel is spreading to all of these places. And some of the first and earliest and most, like, 
prosperous group of converts that came to Christianity were slaves. But just think about the promise of the gospel. It's a promise of forgiveness, and it's a promise of freedom. And so you have these people, these slaves, who, who in no doubt in the early church are, are being converted, are becoming Christians, and then as they grow in the early church, this is kind of what the early church is dealing with. And let's put ourselves, you have these slaves who are coming to church, they're growing in the Lord. Some of those slaves would become deacons. Some of those slaves would become elders in the church and preach and be pastors. And some of those slaves would be pastors to their masters. Can you imagine what that would look like in a church service? In every other sphere of life, the master would be over the slave except for when you go to church. Can you imagine the slave serving the Lord's Supper to his master? Can you imagine a slave baptizing their master? Because of the way they lived their life and the gospel, their master was saved by their actions that God, that God used to save them. This is a question that we see a lot in the New Testament, is this relationship from, of slavery between slaves and masters. How does it, it work? Because there's certainly going to be some slaves who are saying, well, now that I'm a Christian and now that you're a Christian, you should not have me as a slave. There should be freedom, and there's truth there. But let me share what you need to know because this is going to get attacked in Christianity if you start Googling this. If you're evangelizing somebody or if you're talking to somebody about Christianity that is, like, does not like Christianity, this is one of the common objections. In the Bible, there is no place that explicitly prohibits slavery. So, so we are Ira Baptist Church. Our national denomination is the Southern Baptist Convention. That's our, our denomination. One of the main reasons the Southern Baptist Convention was founded was because those who founded it wanted to own slaves. That's a fact of history. And sadly, it was not until 1995 when the SBC issued an apology and repented of that. Now, although the Bible doesn't explicitly say slavery is prohibited, the Bible does not encourage slavery at any point. In fact, if you do research into any nation who has had slavery and then abolished slavery, those who are at the forefront of abolishing slavery are always Christians. Tomorrow is, is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, right? It's Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. He was a pastor. There's aspects of his theology that we need to be careful of, but let's be honest. There's reason there's aspects, aspects of his theology we need to be careful of is because he didn't have access to the education that he should have had access to. I learned this in a Time article. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dad was actually uh, not Martin Luther. Uh, he went on a pastor's conference, and he got to go to Jerusalem. And as a part of this, they went to Berlin. And when he was in Berlin, he came confronted with the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther. And he was so captivated by Martin Luther's story that he changed his name to Martin Luther. It was Martin Luther King. And his son was five years old at the time when his dad did this. And so when his dad began telling him the story of Martin Luther, it was Martin Luther King Jr. who later on in life decided, I'm going to change my name to be Martin Luther King Jr. That it's Christians who have fought for those civil rights. In America, it's Christians who are those who are the earliest that fought to abolish slavery. And across the world, 
in any of the nations that have abolished slavery. It's Christians who stand up and understand that God has made all human beings in his image. That's Genesis 1. That if we are human beings, it doesn't matter male, female, it doesn't matter race, ethnicity, it doesn't matter the color of your skin, it doesn't matter what side of Scurry County you're on. We all have value, we all have worth, we're all due respect, there's dignity because we are made in the image of God as humans. So those who take the Bible seriously work to change those aspects where we devalue human life. And so abolishing slavery is absolutely a result of the gospel. I mean, just think, if you're an atheist and you have nothing to do with Christianity, why would you ever want to abolish slavery? It's only saying it's wrong, and we can only say it's wrong if we have a standard of truth that says mankind is created in God's image. And so here in 1 Peter, Peter doesn't say, slaves, hearing this, and and you masters hearing this, you need to abolish slavery and do your part. That's not in the text here. But what Peter's doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he has a much larger goal for us. Peter's telling these slaves, submit to your master with all reverence. The word reverence is the word that gets translated fear a lot of times. So Peter is telling these Christian slaves to submit to your masters because you fear them? No, no, no. Peter is saying, if you fear God... If you're a believer, if there's a reverence for God, then this means you give up your personal rights to a degree. What Peter is saying is you go evangelize with your words and with your actions, you live a life that backs those words up. Peter's not supporting slavery. Instead, he's saying this is a normal part of life in a normal culture. And if the Lord has placed you in that situation, he's placed you in that situation to be a gospel light and to share the gospel with those that are in your sphere of influence, which would be the person who owns you. So use it for the glory of the Lord and use it for the gospel. Peter goes on at length to say, not only do you do this to the masters who treat you well, don't just submit to those who take care of you, who love you, who bring you into their family, which was something a lot of people would do. These these slaves would be a part of the family for a lot of these people. But not for all. Peter says, don't just do this for the ones who treat you right. It's the ones who are cruel to you that you need to do this to. Why? That seems so countercultural. That seems foreign to us. In, in my mind, if somebody's treating me cruel at the best, I should treat them cruel back. Right? Use my wit, use my smartcasm to undermine them and cut them down with words. Physically, I'm not taking anybody out. Or maybe they should be fighting for their freedom. If the the master is horrible and he's beating them and he's whipping them and he's working them to the ground and he views them as less than humans or as some of the ancient Greeks and Romans called them, they were just farm animals that could talk. That's how some slaves were described. Like, then they should flee. Then you should go and be free. The idea of slavery is talked about in other places in the New Testament and slaves are encouraged to buy their freedom if they can. But that's not ultimately the purpose that God has. 
The ultimate purpose for all of our lives, every human being, is to glorify God where we're at in our lives. And so what Peter is saying in this context, in Asia Minor, under Roman rule, around 60 AD, if you were a slave, glorify God in it. You can and you should glorify God by having reverence, by respecting the person who owns you physically, if that's your lot in life. Many of these Roman slaves would have been. But Peter continues, this brings you favor, is what he says. Listen, the Word of Faith movement, the New Age movement, coupled with the prosperity gospel preachers have hijacked the word favor. It means grace. Unmerited favor means grace. And so what Peter is saying is if you have a cruel master, you submit and you respect him, and this is a grace to you. It's a grace that's something that helps you go through with this. It's going to be very difficult if somebody is physically beating you and treating you as subhuman to respect that person. But if you can do it, God's going to give you the grace to be able to do this. And I love that he says the consciousness of God. It means that God doesn't miss you. Like he didn't overlook your situation in in, in the grand scheme of life. He sees you. Your pain's not happening in a dark corner that God can't peer into. He sees your pain. He sees the hurt. And he sees the injustice that's happening. He hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you. He's giving the grace that you need to make it through this. One of the biggest lies that social media tells us that, that kind of floats around in the Christian world is that God is never going to give you more than you can handle. That's said with good intentions. That's said to try to encourage somebody. But what we're doing is we're telling people, you're strong enough, and God sees your strength, and so he's giving you all these hard things because of how great you are. Who are we exalting if that's what we're telling people? Man. Not God. No, God absolutely will give you more than you can handle because life isn't about you. It's about glorifying God. So maybe God crushes you to your very core, pounds you into the dirt with these hardships that happen, but then God also gives you the grace that you need to survive these things that you would never be able to make it through without God. God supplies the strength. God supplies the grace. He doesn't blink. He doesn't look away. He didn't fall asleep. He cares and he sees you and he provides the grace that you need. Thus, we glorify God when we say, absolutely, God gives me more than I can handle. He also gives me the grace to handle it. It's about God. It's not about us. It's about God providing everything that we need so that we are absolutely, completely, and solely dependent on the Lord. And when we're solely dependent on God, that's the best place you and I could ever be. And then Peter talks about justice. It seems odd for slavery. He says, what credit to you if you do wrong and you get punished? Right, that's, what's, that's justice. If you get what you deserve, that's justice. But when you do good and you suffer, if you endure, this brings favor with the grace of God. This is going to be hard, so, so listen. Because in Texas and in Scurry County, this is going to be difficult to hear. But in your heart and in my heart, I'm afraid that we will offer up all sorts of excuses and rebuttals to what I'm about to say. But at the end of the day, this is an area that our immediate context around us often sin in because we don't want to come to grips with it. Here it is. Justice belongs to God. 
Romans 12, 19, friends, do not avenge yourself. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. Our natural response when we do right and then we're wronged is to get even. Is to get revenge. Or you'll say, I'm not getting even, I'm getting ahead. Or maybe it's not revenge or, or vengeance. You just get angry with that person. You, you messed with the wrong family this time. And so you, you confront them in a way that would lead them to believe that your reputation is what's the most important thing in your life. Or that your, your family, if they come after your kids or your spouse, or your family is the most important thing. It's more important than the gospel of Jesus. Or you write them off and you harbor bitterness against them. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is about the forgiveness of our sin. And it's sin that you and I commit against God. And Jesus says, I will pay for that sin on the cross, but, but my life, uh, but your life is now my life. And so, so love me, uh, live for me. And so how are we doing that? What's one of the main ways we deal with people who are probably unbelievers is living our rights, like living out like our rights are more important than their souls? No. And I'm not saying being a doormat and just get walked all over. But I'm saying in our interactions with other people, when we're wronged or we feel wronged, what should be most clear to them is the gospel of Jesus Christ is most important to us. Because most likely if they wrong you in that way, there's a misunderstanding. They may not be a believer in Jesus. Peter's writing to people who were enslaved. Human beings being owned by other human beings. We're not in that situation. The closest thing that we can find to ourselves that we might be able to relate with that relationship is our relationship with our employer. So if they're cruel, if they treat you wrong, if they belittle you, if they don't pay you fair, if they don't respect you, you as a Christian are called to live that gospel out in front of them in hopes that by your actions and by your words, God might save them. So seek the promotion. Be the best worker that you can be, but live for the gospel, not the salary. And if God presents you with an opportunity to raise, pray about it. Weigh the options. One of the most underrated things that we think about when we take raises or we take new jobs is, is there a healthy church where I'm going to be moving to? Is this promotion going to keep me away from the body of believers or is it going to allow me to have time to be with them more? pray. Maybe Jesus is opening a door for you to share your life, to share the gospel with a whole new group of people. We can get mad that prayer was taken out of schools, but are we going to bring the gospel with us to work? Would your co-workers be surprised to learn that you're a Christian? Don't miss the gospel opportunities that Jesus is giving you right now. If Peter can call slaves to respect their masters, then certainly we can do this as employees and employers. But how? And more importantly, why? Verse 21. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. But when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He bore himself 
uh, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for the righteousness by his words. You have been healed for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd, to the overseer of your soul. So we are called to this if we are Christians. That God has placed this calling on our life as part of salvation. You're saved now. You're called to live this way out in your life. And we live this way because Christ suffered. Christ sacrificed for us. Now let's talk about the sacrifice of Christ. You and I in our suffering cannot save ourselves. So Christ's suffering in one sense is something that we cannot emulate. Right When Christ was bore on the tree, took the curse of our sin on the tree, we can't take our sin that way. It deserves an eternal punishment, an eternal rebellion against God. So Jesus, in one sense, when he suffered on the cross, died as a substitute for you and I if we're believers in Jesus Christ. The gospel is Jesus in my place. It's not Jesus suffered so I have to suffer too so that I can be saved. That's not it. That's not the gospel. This suffering was once and for all, by uh, once for all, uh, salvation by Jesus for us. But then this other sense, or so it saves us in this one sense. However, it also sanctifies us in another sense. It's part of the growth process as a Christian, and so we follow the steps of Jesus. Disciple means follower. We walk in His path. And Peter does something here that we miss because we're often just biblically illiterate, to be honest. He quotes Isaiah 53 almost uh, in various parts in this passage, which is, which is Isaiah prophesying about the suffering servant who's going to come 700 years after Isaiah wrote these prophecies down. And I just want to read them to you because we, we don't do this enough. And, and it, 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 I read it this morning, and I was like, I just have to read it all. So this is Isaiah uh, chapter 52. We're going to start in verse thing. See, my servant will be... Remember, this is 700 years before Christ. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised up and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were appalled at you. His appearance was so disfigured, and he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what he has been told to them, and they will understand what has not been heard. Who has believed... And what have we heard? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He did not have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and he didn't, uh, we didn't value him. Yet he bore, he himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains and we in turn regarded him stricken and struck down by God and afflicted but he was pierced because of our rebellion crushed because of our iniquities punished for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds we all went astray like sheep we have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all he was oppressed and afflicted yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter like a sheep silent before her shears he did not open his mouth and when he was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate he was cut off from the land of the living he was stricken because of my people's rebellion he was assigned a grave with the wicked and he was but he was a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and he had not spoken deceitfully yet the lord was pleased to crush him severely 
When you make him a guilt offering, we see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, we will see light and be satisfied by his knowledge, by my righteous service, will justify many. He will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a proportion, and he will receive the mightiest spoil and be willing because he was submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many people and interceded for the rebels. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah penned those words. A suffering servant rejected, yet bearing our sin. He's quoting Isaiah is what Peter's doing. He says he didn't commit sin. There was no deceit that was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult back. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself into the one who judges justly. Let me remind you of Romans twelve nineteen, Friends, do not avenge yourself. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written... Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. He bore our sins on the tree, having died to sin. That's a curse, according to Deuteronomy, to die on the tree. And he did so that you and I might live for righteousness. This is the goal of the Christian life, to die to ourselves more and more and to live for Christ more and more. By his wounds, we are healed. Martin Luther says it this way, Our suffering is not worthy of the name suffering. When I consider my crosses, tribulations, and temptations, I shame myself almost to death, thinking, what are they in comparison to the sufferings of my blessed Savior, Jesus Christ? And what this is not saying is that Jesus didn't have to die. He just had to be wounded. No, no, what Peter is saying, what the Bible is telling us is that suffering, those being wounded, was a part of the death process for Christ. There's plenty of other passages that talk about the death of Christ is what saves us. This suffering, these wounds that we are healed by are the wounds of death. Spurgeon says it like this, Christian, Jesus does not suffer so as to exclude your suffering. He bears a cross, not that you may escape it, but that you may endure it. Christ exempts you from sin, but not from sorrow. Remember that and expect to suffer. In continuing, thinking through Isaiah 53, Peter says, We like sheep have gone astray. But now we return to the shepherd, to the overseer of our souls. Those are words that the Bible uses in the New Testament to describe pastors. A shepherd, an overseer. And so what Peter's doing is he's saying Jesus is ultimately over the church. Jesus is ultimately the pastor of the church. And he's put these little under-shepherds in here, which we'll get to towards the end of 1 Peter. A shepherd is the one who feeds the sheep. A shepherd is the one who nourishes the sheep. A shepherd is the one who cares for the flock. He knows the sheep, and the sheep know him. He can tell when one is off. He can tell when one is sick. He can tell when one's having a bad day, when he's acting different. The shepherd guards the sheep, which means he puts up a fence for two reasons, to keep the sheep in and to keep predators out. But every now and then, the shepherd has to shoot a wolf, and the sheep do not like the sound of a gunshot. We'll say things like, well, the wolf wasn't that bad to us. 
He was kind. He encouraged us. He built us up. He made us feel powerful. He made us feel like we could do things on our own. He made us comfortable. We don't need a shepherd. That's the wolf's ploy. Because if the sheep can't stray, the wolf can't eat. That's why in the Bible we see the images of the good shepherd chasing down lone sheep. They may not even know they're in the flock. They may just be running around, and Jesus runs up to him as the good shepherd and says, Mine, and grabs them and he brings them in. He's called the overseer, which means like a manor. I mean, you see, he oversees what's happening in the church. He's watching, making sure everything is going like it's supposed to go. If there's an issue, he fixes it. If somebody needs encouragement, he encourages them. If they need correction, he corrects them. But it's this loving idea of looking at the whole picture of what the church is and watching after it all. So don't forget, this section is about slaves glorifying God. So really what Peter is doing under the influence of the Holy Spirit is he is saying that we are to submit to those who have authority over us because that's God's purpose and that's God's plan for our life. That our national rights are not our national rights anymore. We belong to the kingdom of God if we're Christians. And so everything that we have, including our American citizenship, is to be lobbied and to be used for the glory of God. So we use the freedom that we have as Americans to obey and submit to our government because in the end, we know that Jesus is king. Who cares who the president is? Our personal rights are not our personal rights anymore. We belong to King Jesus. So everything that we have, including our employment status, is to be used for the glory of God. I love that that Peter says, submit with freedom to the governing authorities. And in the next breath, he talks about slaves who would have no freedom submitting. That the gospel spread because these slaves used their lack of freedom for the glory of God. In a very real way, Peter writing these letters to these churches who would have these slaves in there as they grow in Jesus Christ and as they share the gospel and other people repent and turn to Jesus. And as that gospel is passed generation to generation to generation, you and I are likely the result of these slaved people saying, my personal rights don't matter, what matters is the gospel. Their owners would beat them and mistreat them and abuse them. And many who read this very letter would have blood-stained clothes and bruises on them. And they're called to respect those who dishonor them and disrespect them. This is called the pebble in the shoe effect. Every day, Addie comes home from school. She takes her shoes off and she dumps what seems to be millions upon billions of black rubber beads right onto the carpet of our house. They stick to my feet. I don't notice them until I put my shoes on. And in the moment I put my Crocs on, I'm like, there is something on the bottom of my foot, and it's irritating. And so I have to sit down, muster up the strength to bend over, take my shoe off, and dust out the little black pebble that's on the bottom of my foot. This is what the gospel's calling us to do. To live lives that are different and to live lives that are so different because we understand where our eternal security is at. So our life now, our personal rights now, our national freedom now pales in comparison to our eternal status with the Lord. So when we're dealing with cruel people, when we're not being treated right, we don't yell back. 
We don't seek vengeance. We don't seek to get ahead. Instead, we respond with gospel love for that person. We love God. We love others. That means sometimes that love is having a long and a hard conversation with somebody, but it leaves a pebble in their shoe. Where they cannot figure out why we are so weird. Where they cannot figure out that no matter how much we're belittled, how much we're pushed, how much we're, how cruel we're treated, how bad it is for us that there is a hope, that there is a joy, that there is a peace, that there is something else about us that is this pebble in their shoe that is irritating to them, and they simply cannot figure out what's going on. They can't keep going in life until they sit down and deal with the pebble. So those who we dislike the most, those who are the meanest and the most unjust to us, those who are the most cruel to us, must sit down and deal with the gospel because of how we respond to how they treat us. What would happen if all of our enemies began repenting and turning to Jesus because of the gospel influence God used our lives for them? That suddenly those people who are enemies are now brothers and sisters in Christ. So this means for many of us, what we need to do this morning is we need to apologize. To repent. That'll look weird. That'll feel weird. Praise God it will. Because it will open doors for gospel pebbles to be put in people's shoes. This means for many of us that that there are people and that there are things and there are issues that we have been harboring and that we have been holding on to that we absolutely have to let go of. That we've been wronged and we need to move on. To stop harboring bitterness at those who want us to hate them. That will look weird. And that will stick in a shoe. And this means for some of us that are here this morning, you know that you're not saved. That this gospel makes sense, but you haven't personally owned it. You you haven't prayed for forgiveness. You haven't trusted Jesus to save you. Maybe this is the pebble in your shoe. It's not going to stop hurting until you deal with the gospel, until you repent, and until you believe. The pebble in the shoe is the goal for so much of our life as Christians. Live out the gospel where God has planted you today tomorrow and until the Lord takes us home. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you that we do get to gather together. God, thank you that in our limited power, in our limited ability, God, you you didn't save us because we were strong. You didn't save us because we have our lives together. You didn't save us because we bring value or we bring something of, of good to you, God. You saved us because we needed to be saved. You saved us, God, because we are completely and totally dependent on you. God, thank you that you choose to use us. Insignificant sinners who have nothing but Jesus Christ to shake the world up. God, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your good news that we can proclaim with our mouth and that we can live out our actions in our life. Thank you, God, that that gospel and that that good news continues to be passed down from generation to generation. 
God, thank you that you're not done saving people yet. That you're not done growing us in you yet. Help us to continue to grow in you. And God, if we're unbelievers, if there's unbelievers here, help us to help them to repent and to turn to you. Help us to put pebbles in shoes. And use those tiny rocks for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, Tanner's going to lead us in worship.